Welcome to episode 26 of That Classical Podcast. This time, Ravel and Gershwin. Hello! Hello! My name is Chris Bland. My name's Kelly Harlock. And you're listening to episode 26 of That Classical Podcast. Welcome, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about two composers we've actually mentioned several times just before. Just once um, It's Ravel and Gershwin today. And Chris, you're going to start us off with Ravel, aren't you? Absolutely. I'm going to start talking about uh, Mr. Maurice Ravel. Maurice. And as always, when we have an episode with two composers, it's now time for... The 60 Second Show! That's right. The life and times of Maurice <laughs> Ravel condensed down into one minute or less. Hopefully not more. I'm feeling confident. Crazy old Maurice. That's the only thing I can think about from Beauty and the Beast. Do you know that? <laughs> I'm sure our listeners will uh, will get it. Okay. It's not a reference I would have gone for, but I, I appreciate I'm going to get the timer out. Right. You ready? I'm so ready. Steady. Oh. Go. Maurice Ravel, born 1875, died in 1937, is born in the Basque region of France. Dad was an inventor who made the whirlwind of death roller coaster. Uh, his mother's Basque heritage had a really strong impact on him and his music. Uh, he's a pretty natural musician, though. He's good at the piano and composition. Uh, he went to the Conservatoire de Paris, aged 14. He was a solid composer and piano player, but never stood out. The Conservatoire was very conservative, didn't allow him any flexibility. He was expelled in 1895, came back in 1897. Meantime, uh, began making pals with people like Eric Satie, being taught by Foray. Um, Foray loves him. The Conservatoire director does not. Uh, he's too musically and prolifically progressive for his taste, so he's expelled again in 1900 whoops um, oh he's pals with uh, Claude Debussy but not that much admires work they fall out eventually despite people linking their work together um, he tried to join the French Air Force at the start of World War I because he was small but he was, they were like no you're too small and old um, instead he became a lorry driver uh, the war took a toll and his already slow rate of production slowed down after the war still viewed as the number one French composer though uh, he's well loved tours around Europe and North America his fee was $10,000 in unlimited Goldswars cigarettes 10 seconds uh, he's world famous but he remained pretty chill about it uh, 1932 suffers a blow to the head in a taxi accident uh, which worsened a pre-existing brain condition stopped seconds. composing but still social. His condition began to cause One pain. Second. Had an operation, uh, fell into a coma, died age 62. Uh-huh. Died age okay. 62. That was one minute and two seconds, but I'll oh, let you no. off. Okay. okay. I was so confident. Um, let's hold on a sec. Did everyone hate Ravel? It sounds like no. he fell out with everyone that he came into contact no. with in <laughs> life. Like, no, that's not fair. So he... Um, the the guy who was in charge of the conservatoire in Paris was a man named Dubois, who was very uh, politically and musically conservative. Right. So Ravel was like, I want to do this, I want to do that. Yeah. Let's maybe not hate foreigners. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Dubois was like, nope, I do not like this. Um, so one example okay. of where they clashed was uh, during World War One. people like this guy Dubois and other composers like Saint-Saëns, they oh, yeah. formed um, a league called the Ligue Nationale pour la Défense de la Musique Française. Oh my God. Which is the National League for the Defense of French that Music. Is brilliant. And like Dumbledore's Army, but no, French but music. Dumbledore's Army, but super racist. <laughs> Shit. They were right. defending French music, and they so they didn't want to play any German music or anything during the oh war. Oh my god! Okay. Um, yeah. No. And Ravel was like, "Well, hang on, let's not punish the artists for like crazy politi- yeah. uh, politicians' decisions." Yeah. Uh, so this really annoyed the sort of conservative nationalist side of the the right. musical establishment. Uh, so <laughs> didn't get on so well with them. Okay. Uh, he also had a falling out with Debussy. They were fans of each other for a while. They obviously they were the two big dog French composers. Right. They were aware yeah. of each other. Yeah. But in the first decade of the 1900s, they had a bit of a falling out. And some people think it's because. So as we've mentioned in a previous episode about Debussy, mm-hmm. he was a bit of a bit of a boffer. He um, what's a boffer? A bit of a shagger. Oh, <laughs> that's, that's disgusting. <laughs> he, you know he. 
<laughs> left right, his okay, wife. Yeah, yeah. He left his wife a little bit. Right. And moved off with a, a singer. Right. And Ravel, along with some other people, contributed towards some living expenses for uh, Lily Debussy, who is oh, the yeah. abandoned wife of Claude Debussy. Yeah. So some people speculate that that might have contributed to them falling out, but the fallout wasn't major. Okay. Uh, and in general, he was well-liked. And at the peak of his powers, he was the number one French composer and was world famous, um, including, I, I skipped over it really quickly, but the most French fee ever. Right. He went on a tour around North America. His fee was a guaranteed minimum $10,000 and unlimited Gaulois cigarettes. A Gaulois the ones that smell really bad. I'm not sure, but they're like yeah, the very French yeah. like Like flip-flops. Great. Oh, Excellent. Well, that's good. I hope he didn't die of that. No, he didn't. So he suffered this accident in 1932. It was in a taxi accident and got a blow to the head. Oh. And that sort of curtailed all of his composing after then, basically. And he died five years later after an unsuccessful operation. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. poor guy. But overall, the main impression I want you to have of right. Maurice Ravel yes. is that he was ridiculously hardworking. So he was never a particularly prolific composer. Right. But what he did was work insanely hard right. on all of his pieces yeah. and would just labour over them. Okay. Uh, and was also amazingly indifferent to criticism or praise because he knew that he worked oh. so hard on it that he was like, well, I like it, so I literally don't care what so anyone else thinks. Basically. That is great. Well, good on him. So now we're just going to jump straight into the first piece that I've chosen to talk about. Excellent. Uh, which is called Daphnis et Chloé. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. C'est très français. Which is a ballet, <laughs> one of three ballets that he wrote, and in fact the longest bit of music that he ever wrote. So he never wrote any symphonies or anything. Okay. But he described this ballet, Daphne and Chloé, as a, uh, let me find the phrase, he called it a symphonie chorégraphique. So a, okay. a choreographic mm-hmm. symphony. Nice. Sort of thing. A bit of dancing. It is. So it's a ballet, basically, originally. It's now performed more regularly as orchestral suites. So they've been edited down and they're just performed in concert Mm -hmm. rather than as ballets with proper dancing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was premiered in 1912. And... So it was a co-creation with a chap called Michel Fouquin, who was a choreographer. No laughing about that. No, I didn't. Name. I definitely didn't. <laughs> right. And they disagreed a whole bunch about the piece. So the premiere was like vastly under-rehearsed because they only finished it. Why do they do that? It I happens mean, with every on, premiere of Get everything. Get it together. <laughs> I know. So it was just really under-rehearsed because they finished it so late, so close to the, Living on the, edge. the premiere. So it's a one hour long piece, one act, three scenes, and it's probably the closest to, so Ravel is often viewed as an impressionist composer, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and impressionism is the kind of genre that people associate with composers like him and Debussy, Mm -hmm. which is this sort of like slightly wishy-washy, gives you an impression, duh, uh, with these (laughs) lush harmonies. And so this is probably closest to that sort of impressionist oeuvre. Okay. So let's have a listen and we're going to talk about it a bit after. I'm excited. What do you make of that? 
I uh, just saying to you actually I, that's so Ravel for me I, yeah. I hear Ravel especially in the <laughs> do, 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 like that kind of repeated kind of frenzied motif I don't know it's very Ravel in my yeah head. that's right so that piece that we just heard is the last dance of the whole ballet basically and this is when everything's over and everyone comes back on stage so I'm going to tell you oh, yeah. I'm going to take you through the mm. story of this ballet because as with so often in operas and stuff, it's like they take the kernel of an idea and you're like, cool, this makes sense. And then they just add bits into it. You're like, why have you added that? Yes, that's so, my favourite kind. <laughs> so it's based on, the original is a, a Greek myth of these two people, Daphnis and Chloe. So Daphnis is a goat herd. Chloe is a shepherdess. They fall a in love. A goat herder rather than a herd itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the word is goat herd. Okay, He's... sorry. <laughs> Sorry, he is a herd of goats embodied in one man. <laughs> that I would see. So they're in love. Chloe gets stolen away by some pirates and then gets returned to Daphnis and they're in love thanks to the god Pan helps them out. Oh, yeah. That's like the, the kernel of the story. Right. But then in this ballet, just like weird things happen. So it starts off with everyone coming on stage. Mm-hmm. Daphnis dances with some girls. Chloe is super gel. She's really jealous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Then she gets swept up into this dance. A cow herd, again, a cow herd okay, rather than a right. herd of cows. <laughs> right. This guy named Dorcan tries to kiss her. Daphnis is having none of it, so challenges him to a dance-off. Okay. And then Dorcan is a bit clumsy. And so, but then everyone's just really mean to this guy, Dorcan, and like all of the dancers on stage imitate his clumsy dancing, and he gets laughed oh. off stage, and then is never spoken about again for the rest of the ballet. So, like, cool. So, that was just them being mean to this guy for no reason. He's in his room crying, yeah. It's really weird. So, after that, Daphne and Chloe, they have a little smooch. Then everyone goes off stage, just leaving Daphne's face down in some grass, just like lying still as if he's. Is he drunk? He's in ecstasy, apparently. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> So he hears shouts, some pirates come along, take Chloe away, fine. He finds her sandal, curses the gods. He's like, no, you let the pirates take Chloe away. Sure. Some nymphs come to him and are like, don't worry, Pan, the god Pan will help you. Mm. And he's like, okay, cool. So that's part one. Part two, they're in the pirate camp. They make Chloe dance and she tries to escape a couple of times but can't. Right. Then flames light up and magical creatures appear and the, like, the outline shadow of Pan appears. Right. All of the pirates poop themselves in fear and right. run off and scatter. Right. Part three, Daphnis, who, can I remind you, has done nothing. He's, He's laying down like, on some grass. He found her sandal and was like, curse you, gods. <laughs> and then some shepherdesses bring Chloe back and it's like, oh, great. And then From to say... H- how? I how don't know, did they get pan... to the sea? But they were No, there was a pirate camp. They weren't oh, actually right. out at sea. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Land so then uh, Daphnis is told by this random shepherd, they're like, oh yeah, Pan helped you in memory of uh, him falling in love with this nymph, Syrinx. So then Daphnis and Chloe dance out the story of Pan falling in love with Syrinx. <laughs> so At the end, Chloe, well, it's a bit of ballet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Chloe falls into Daphnis's arms. Uh, he sacrifices two sheep to say cheers to Pan. <laughs> then a massive group of youths rush onto stage and they dance a bacchanal, which is a sort of orgiastic drunken revel. And that's the beginning of that is what we just heard there. So it sort of, it takes the kernel of the story and then it's like, gonna add all this stuff it to was, it. Exactly, because clearly he just did like the bare minimum and then someone said, no, this is boring. The kids <laughs> the kids aren't going to be interested. You need the kids hashtags. Need to see some cheap yeah, sacrifice. Yeah, exactly. Put Facebook in there. But instead he just put loads of like mythology. Yeah. Um, but it's a nice piece <laughs> okay, of music good. though. And even at the yeah. time, people were like, yeah, this is a pretty masterful piece of work. Kind of his, it worked out effectively as his orchestral masterpiece. So he didn't write loads of explicitly orchestral pieces but this is one of them and at only an hour long i suggest you go and listen to the whole thing because it's rather lovely i will okay three 
for the classical podcast. Nailed it. Kelly. Yes. Do you like jazz? I love a bit of jazz. Jazz, baby, jazz. Jazz, baby, jazz. <laughs> uh, well, it's funny you should say that because next we're going to be talking about Ravel's piano concerto in G major. Okay. Which is one of his more explicitly jazz-influenced pieces. Nice. Tell me all about it. So, Ravel, despite having this reputation as an exclusively impressionist impressionistic composer rather he actually synthesized a whole bunch of different styles into his writing so as i mentioned yeah not like for the like synthesizer. A i mean sorry keep going i mean synthesizers in combined lots of different right. styles Got it. so as i mentioned before he had his basque heritage so that's why he wrote loads of pieces with a basque or a spanish influence on them okay he at this time so he wrote this piano concerto from 1929 to 1931 and this was the time when jazz coming over from America was super popular. Mm-hmm. So he's on record as saying that he much preferred jazz to opera at that sort of time. Nice. And I'm a so cool he was dude. he was a real <laughs> cool cat. Yeah. So, oh, God. Yeah. So he's an incredibly good composer in the sense of allowing himself to be influenced by lots of different things mm. and weaving them into his music. Mm-hmm. So we're going to listen to it now, and we're going to listen to the opening of the third movement, which is rather exciting and rather jazzy. to lie down after that yeah i think that was a bit more that intense was, than you're whoa, expecting that is great though it's like everyone's getting involved everyone and their dog is coming in and no it's me um that is great yeah so as you can hear from that it's quite similar to people like gershwin who also wrote as we all go on to discuss yeah. but i won't step on your toes who wrote a piece like rhapsody in blue mm. and it's got the same sort of like swoopy clarinet sounds in there yeah, that yeah. are taken pretty much directly from american mm. jazz traditions right uh, so as I mentioned before in the intro, Ravel was this incredibly hard worker. So it took him two years to write this concerto. Two years? Uh, two whole years. Oh, so yeah. the opening theme for the first movement came to him on a train and then took him two years to complete. And he said, writing music is 75% an intellectual activity. I feel like a lot of composers get ideas on trains. Gershwin got the idea for Rhapsody in Blue on a train. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Well, go, on we trains, go. go on trains, guys. You'll think of amazing concertos, we, we promise. We promise. We do not promise. And similarly, for the second movement of this concerto is a really sort of... It's much more tranquil. There's this, I don't believe you. <laughs> but no, it really is. There's this beautiful flowing melody that seems really, really effortless. Yeah. And when someone commented on that to him... <laughs> Ravel was like, that flowing phrase, how I worked over it bar by bar, it nearly killed me. Oh my so God. So he really was someone who had his initial bit of inspiration and then would really labour over it piece by piece. And so he was, as well as being an incredible composer, he was a master orchestrator. So he's right. orchestrated uh, works by a bunch of other composers and orchestration just briefly means that when you take, so for example, you can orchestrate a piano piece and blow it up so it can be played by 
by a whole orchestra. Mm-hmm. And so Ravel's skill in this lay in, he had this really sort of unparalleled sense of how instruments work together and mm-hmm. exactly what role each instrument could perform and what would sound best on which instrument. Mm-hmm. He just had a real sort of knack for that. Um, and if you remember from Armour's Augsburg episode, Ravel orchestrated exactly, uh, pictures and an exhibition. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So he really he was great. Absolutely. So that's all I have to say on the piano concerto. But before we move on from talking about Ravel, mm. I feel there's a big old elephant in the room, Kelly. What is it? And it's our least favourite piece ever. <laughs> oh my God, Namely, Bolero. 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 So we have had some oh feedback because no. I think, was it in our first ever episode of the podcast? first episode. We absolutely slated this piece. Yeah. And a couple of you were like, hey, no, it's, it's okay. okay. It's quite good. You're wrong. Can I tell you why you're <laughs> Your wrong? Your opinion is wrong. Your opinion is wrong. So Ravel himself was not complimentary of it. He said, the work is one long, very gradual crescendo. There are no contrasts and there's practically no invention. Yes. The themes are altogether impersonal. I've written only one masterpiece, Bolero. Unfortunately, there's no music in it. Oh is my what he God. said. And even more, so at the, <laughs> at the premiere, uh, so he really didn't like it that much. At the premiere, one old lady in the audience shouted, Rubbish! And no. he said, That old lady got the message. Shut so up. for him, it was this sort of experimental piece of how you can pull one idea out and out and out and he didn't like it yeah. nor do we you shouldn't either you shouldn't but either but if you do live your truth it's okay also you're wrong anyway so that's one piece by Ravel that I absolutely would not recommend listening to any that you would recommend listening to absolutely there are mm-hmm. there's another wonderful piano concerto that he wrote which is exclusively for the left hand so you know usually oh. you play piano with two hands mm-hmm. he wrote this for a one-armed piano player exclusively with your left hand genuinely yeah, yeah. wow I know, that cool, is cool right? okay and a another orchestral suite called Ma Mère Loire, which is My Mother the Owl. And yes. it's, it's, again, another really, really beautiful bit of orchestral writing. Mm. So go out and listen to those. And uh, going back to our first episode, my favourite piece by Ravel is Miroir. It's a, it's a piano set of piano pieces Ooh, that he yeah. wrote. And it contains um, Alborada del Gracioso, which is one of my favourite pieces in the world. So Perfect. please go and listen to that. Um, I think it's already on the Spotify playlist, but I'm going to put it on again <laughs> um, by Jove. Yeah, go and have a look. Classical podcast. Right, up next, we've got George Gershwin. Ooh, lovely. Who you may remember from our piano episode because I played Rhapsody in Blue because it's the best piece ever written any time <laughs> in the world in space ever. Uh, but now we're going to talk about his life. Chris, are you ready to time me? <gasps> I am so ready to time you. Let's are do a you cheeky, ready to. A cheeky 60 seconds. <laughs> right. Three, oh God. two, one, go. George Jacob Gershwin was born September 26, 1898, in Brooklyn, New York. He had a standard New York upbringing until he was about 11 he didn't give a crap about music but heard his friend playing the violin one day and was like yeah nice one mate and started playing the piano left school at 15 and worked as a song plugger playing the latest sheet music available from music publishers quickly became one of the most fe- uh, talented pianists in New York later started recording hundreds of piano rolls for self-playing pianos did a cheeky bit of vaudeville on the side 1919 had a national hit with song Swanny and started making songs for a ton of Broadway shows 1924 wrote Rhapsody in Blue great success mid-1920s lived in Paris for a while and applied to study composition with Ravel oh, but Ravel through. was like absolutely not wrote an American in Paris in 1928 got bored of France went back to the USA. 1929, composed for films with help from his older brother Ira as his lyricist. 1935, wrote Porgy and Bess, a folk opera, which became an American classic and transcended the border of musicals and opera. Mm. He was a bloody huge success. Gersh moved to Hollywood. 
uh, and had been having a 10-year relationship with a composer called Kay Swift, but never married her. 1937, Gersh started getting awful headaches and suffering from coordination problems, mood swings and blackouts. Family and then just thought it was a period of mental illness, but Five. sadly they discovered he had a brain tumour and he died at the age of 38 on July 11th, 1937. One minute exactly. <laughs> and a sad end for our friend Gersh. Yeah, so what, I was too paying too much attention yeah. to the timer. Take me through his end again. Oh, it was really sad. He basically, for a while, he just started getting these really bad headaches, like smelling burnt rubber, things like that, uh, having blackouts sometimes on stage when he was playing, really? having these awful mood swings, pushing people out of cars. Oh, and people were just God. like, Gersh was having a bit of a moment. Um, but actually, they, they found out too late he had brain tumour oh. and they tried to operate on it, but he passed away. Oh, that's such a shame. Sorry, George. But yeah, no, he was such a cool guy, wasn't yeah. he? Yeah. And he start, He was a professional pianist by the age of 15. Uh, so tell me about the piano rolls, for like a player piano. Oh, okay. So first of all, he was this thing called a song plugger. Okay. okay down in Tin Pan Alley in New York, okay? <laughs> this sounds so New York, um, I love it. And so basically, when publishers had new sheet music, mm. they needed someone to take it out to the masses. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like if you, there was no way to to hear it other than someone on a piano Actually playing, playing it. the sheet music, sure. Yeah. And so Gershwin did this for a number of years, mm. and that's when he developed his kind of improvisation skills and cool. sort of transposing, yeah. which means when you take a piece up a couple of keys or down a couple of keys and yeah. play it in a different key. And then, yeah, so then he started recording music roles. So I mentioned this in our in our piano episode as well. Okay. But you know those old school self-playing pianos? that play themselves. Exactly, they have yeah. a roll of paper that kind of, yeah. He recorded those. So you could be sitting in a bar in New York and you'd probably be listening to Gershwin and not realising it back in the day. That's so cool. Um, which is, is really cool. Um, I also want to say that his first published song was when he was 17 in 1916. And it was called When You Want Him. You can't get them when you've got them. You don't want them. <laughs> Which I just, it's not Despacito, is it? Uh, and I feel like it should be Tinder's byline as well. <laughs> but it earned him 50 cents. Happy days. <laughs> which, is, which is great. Happy days. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to mention was Ravel. Yeah, the Ravel connection. So basically, Gershwin went around when he was famous. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like he'd already had a bunch of hits. Asking loads of other famous composers to give him lessons oh. and like tutor him. Yeah. Uh, one of these composers was Ravel. Yeah. He, he went to, but Ravel sent him a rejection letter being <laughs> like, no, why become a second rate Ravel when you're already a first rate Gershwin? Uh, I didn't the... find exactly that quote, but I found oh, really? he said something similar. He was like, they would probably cause him to write bad Ravel and lose his great gift of melody and spontaneity. Oh, right. <laughs> Mine's better. Mine's way better. But e- either way, Ravel's a I, fan of Gershwin. I was kind of researching this, and it seems like Gershwin might have been a bit of a twat. <laughs> because like it, it sounds like he'd play at like nice parties and yeah. like, be the centre of attention, yeah. and then go up to other composers there and be like, hey, do you want to give me lessons? Like, oh, do, you fa- like- do you fancy giving me a lesson? And they'd all be like, no, mate. Like, you're fine, oh, really? mate. Do you know what I mean? Okay, so I feel like it right. might have been a bit more... Mm, <laughs> yeah, he was a twat. Anyway, shall we go into the first piece? Oh, do let's. Do let's. Right, we're going to talk about Concerto in F. Oh. Oh, 
my days. It's a good one. So <laughs> Gershi Boy wrote this in 1925, and it's a concerto for solo piano and orchestra. Yeah. I guarantee, I guarantee you've probably not heard a piano concerto like this before. Oh. I really, I promise you. <laughs> so to put this in context. What if I've heard this concerto before? Then uh, shut up. <laughs> uh, so to put this in context, George had just premiered Rhapsody in Blue at the Concert and Experiment in Modern Music in 1924. Mm. If you want to know more about that, please go and listen to our piano episode because I go into detail tell about it absolutely good times uh, so the day after this concert uh, a dude called Walter Damrosch who was the conductor and director of the New York Symphony Orchestra mm-hmm. uh, this dude came up to oh no, I think he wrote to Gershwin and was like I like the cut of your jib <laughs> um, I loved Rhapsody uh, could you write me a piece like that but not that yeah. Oh, that's such like a classic that. bit of creative direction. Like, but not could you that. do that, but not that? <laughs> Just so make it, exactly make the it same, better. but not the same. Exactly. Um, and he, so, yeah, he was like, write that, but not that. Could you make it a piano concerto that's actually a proper classical one? Kind yeah. Of? And can you actually orchestrate it yourself, you lazy git? <laughs> um, because basically, uh, Rhapsody in Blue had been orchestrated by another guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, w- which was fine, but yeah. So Gershwin took about six months to write and orchestrate this piece. Mm-hmm. And it shows a great deal of development in his technique because yeah. he actually had to do it all himself. <laughs> yeah, um, he, he pulled up his big boy pants this time <laughs> and, and he smashed it. And obviously it goes without saying, the whole piece is really heavily influenced by jazz. Yeah. I'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. But for now, we're going to listen to the third movement. It's called Allegro Agitato. <laughs> and Gershwin actually said the following about the entire piece. I love it. It's an orgy of rhythms. <laughs> so let's let's listen to it now and Georgie, see, if, baby. see if you agree. Georgie the Orgy. <laughs> It's quite, it's quite similar to the Ravel concerto, isn't it? it? You can hear Ravel in it, I think, yeah. Yeah, like as, as some kind of influence. Definitely, and yeah. in terms of the real sort of like rhythmic vitality. Because he wrote it around the time he was asking Ravel to teach him stuff yeah. as well. Yeah. So maybe it was, yeah. But yeah, because those repeated notes, those like really frenzied repeated notes yeah. you hear a lot in Ravel yeah. all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what a piece, what <laughs> a piece. So... Um, as always, mixed reviews <laughs> from, from people at the time. People were like, is it jazz or is it classical? We don't know and we don't understand, therefore we don't like it. <laughs> um, Stravinsky, though, the, the composer, thought it was genius. Prokofiev thought it was amateurish. Yeah, I can't see Prokofiev um, enjoying that. Schoenberg thought it was the best thing he'd ever heard in his life. But, you know, to, on that point of whether it's classical or jazz... You know, that is, that's a good point. That yeah. is a good point. I think... Does it matter? Does it, First of all, A, does it does matter? Does it matter? B, yeah. a really basic way of talking about it is that jazz heavily relies, or at least a little bit relies, on improvisation. Okay. And, um, you know, these are pieces, they're not meant to be improvised at all. They're written as they're meant to be played, mm-hmm. like a classical piece would be. Okay. You know, that is where it leans more heavily towards being a classical piece. But obviously you can okay, have a jazz right. influence, you can have blue notes, you can have syncopated sure, rhythms. These sure. are all things that you find in jazz and blues. Mm. And that's where I guess the combo is, but it's still more strict. It's strictly 
classical. So you would definitely put this in the under the classical banner. I would. Than the jazz yeah, one. I think okay. most people yeah. would as well. Yeah, I think but that's probably discuss. Fair. <laughs> and the last thing I want to say about this, just on a personal note, and I'm going to talk about it later anyway. But in the film, an American in Paris, one of the characters who basically is playing Gershwin in in, right. in some respect, he's like an out of work musician living in Paris. Yeah plays this movement uh, of this piece mm. and the actor Oscar Levant uh, was this really accomplished pianist so he's actually oh, playing cool. it himself and he's daydreaming about being every part of the orchestra Whoa. so the violins he's playing all the violins he's conducting he's playing the timpani he's playing <laughs> the piano it is phenomenal I'm gonna put it on Twitter you must watch it um, awesome. it's just the best way to experience this piece <laughs> I, I, I promise you Next! It's an American in Paris, which I just <laughs> talked about a second ago. Um, but, but Gershwin wrote a piece called An American in Paris. Uh, was it while he was living in Paris in as an Paris. American? It was, yes. Shocker. Uh, and he wrote it in 1928. I'm really excited to talk about it because it's such an iconic piece mm. and it's one of my favourite films in the world. So, yes, it was inspired by the time he spent in Paris uh, and it was good old Walter Damrosch who'd asked him to do concerto in F. Who asked him for this as well. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So um, he commissioned it. Yeah, just yeah. the same. Okay. And Gershwin said in the original programme notes uh, at the premiere, my purpose here today is to portray the impression of an American visitor in Paris as he <laughs> strolls... <laughs> shocker. Yeah, no shit, shit. Oh, shut up. As he strolls around the city and listens to various street noises and absorbs the French atmosphere. All right, so so really, it's a bit of a tone poem, isn't it? Cool. Because it's it's telling a story. It's a piece that tells a story mm-hmm. through, through music. Mm-hmm. And Gershwin, one of my favourite facts about this is that Gershwin used real Parisian taxi horns at the premiere in 1928 that he so brought cool. back yeah he brought them back from Paris yeah because um, if you ever walked around Paris at all and yeah. I'm sure back in the day if you're near a traffic a jam it's like hur, hur, all the time and um I was also doing some research and yes people on the internet will argue about anything is what I'll say <laughs> to preface this Everyone's like, yeah, but guys, what pitch were the French taxi horns originally oh at God. the premiere? Like, I think it was an A. I think it was a C. Like, guys, I don't care. <laughs> like, guys, please, <laughs> just give me the basic facts. That's all I want. <laughs> um, anyway, let's let's listen and let's see what you think. Okie doke. I heard the horn up. <laughs> I also just love it's such perfect like walking down the street music. Of just <laughs> it's not even walking; it's like striding down the street. Um, oh, and it. I'll talk about that later as well. Um, so another one: Gershwin actually walked out of this premiere because he hated oh. it so much. He hated Walter's interpretation of it. Oh, Gershwin no. himself just like you know left um but the the audience loved it um and the audience were like yeah this kicks concerto in f's butt um so yeah people were really into it but then obviously you also had some people saying 
it shouldn't be played on a program with people like Wagner and, you know, it shouldn't be played amongst these like classical legends. Well, yeah, that'd be a terrible concert, putting that next well, to Wagner well, anyway. I think it was. I think on in what? the premiere, yeah, I think that's why people said it or something. And so Gershwin was like, <laughs> guys, it's not a Beethoven symphony, you know, this is a quote. It's not a Beethoven symphony, you know, it's a humorous piece. Nothing solemn about it. It's not intended to draw tears. If it pleases symphony audiences as a light, jolly piece, a series of impressions musically yeah. expressed, it succeeds. I yeah, love that because that's, that's how exactly I feel about is. classical music generally anyway. It's like, it's like sometimes it's not meant to draw tears. It is just quite fun and silly. It's like, just a nice tune. This is a song about horns. Like, what do you want? It's about taxi. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so I, I love this piece. But my love for this piece didn't really develop until I saw the 1951 film An American in Paris with Gene ah, okay. Kelly and Leslie Caron. So the film um, came out a good couple of decades yeah, after Yeah, and, and it was inspired written. by this piece. Sure. And all the music in the piece is, is by Gershwin. Cool. And Gene Kelly plays this struggling artist in Paris and he falls in love and dances around. But the climax of the entire film is a 17-minute dream sequence of this so in American wow. Paris, American Paris is playing in the background. Yeah. And then Gene Kelly choreographed a 17 minute Whoa. enormous dance piece that cost about $500,000. And I think that was one of the most expensive musical. Wow. Uh, and in like 50s money. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It was like one of the ex- most expensive musical numbers of wow, all time. That's so cool. And it's amazing. And all the backgrounds are based on French painters. And you've got every Parisian character in the world <laughs> dancing around. It's just like nothing you've ever seen. That sounds amazing. My favorite section is the one where Gene is in really tight beige leggings LA. just uh, shaking his butt to the camera like, uh, <laughs> but no you must watch it. it it really puts a song so all that and the striding around yeah. and the running around and, and every different kind of theme in the pieces is is shown by a different set of characters like cool. the soldiers or the, the women or yeah. um, a florist or you know and, and there's just the most amazing fusion of ballet and mm. you must watch it it's amazing <laughs> you gotta so that is an American in Paris. In terms of what else you should listen to by Gershwin, mm. I don't necessarily think you should just stick to the classical things. Like okay. he was, he was famous for writing amazing jazz songs. Sure. Um, yeah, he wrote "I Got Rhythm." He wrote "Embraceable You." "Love mm. Is Here to Stay." Mm. "Someone to Watch Over Me." All oh, these pieces, all big hitters, and, and yeah. they're just so good. Absolutely. And yeah. what you know, obviously, Rhapsody in Blue," "American in Paris," um, "Concerto in F. F." These yeah. are the the more classical ones. Concert hall stuff. Exactly, and, and you should just... go and see those because they're great <laughs> as well. But. Um, Definitely watch an American in Paris. And definitely watch Gene Kelly shaking his thumb. I always do. Das Klassische Podcast. So that was our episode on Ravel and Gershwin. Ooh. Thank you so much for listening. Hmm. We had a tremendous time. We did. We hope you did too. <laughs> we always do. But before we let you go, we have got some unbelievably exciting news. Kelly, drumroll, please. <laughs> We've got a website! That's right, we finally have a website. So, www.thatclassicalpodcast.com Smashed it. Could not be easier to remember. Exactly. All of you go and look at it right now. Not only can you find all of our episodes on there, a bit about us, some cool pictures. Mm. Uh, you can find all of our social medias and the, the Spotify playlist. Our email. Uh, all of that. Everything. But we've got one page that we're really excited about, and that is the That Classical Podcast Glossary. Yes, indeed. So in this show, we try and make classical music as open and accessible to everyone as much as we can. Mm-hmm. And so we thought, well, we get asked now and again, oh, what does this word mean? What 
what, what what's a symphony? About? Like, what's a soprano? Like, you know, and, and we want to make it really easy. We don't want to make you go to Wikipedia and, and have to, like, trawl through loads of information about exactly. it. Exactly. We've just, we've smacked it down into one sentence that sums it up really quickly and easily. Exactly. And we hope that it helps you. And if you have any suggestions that you'd like us to put in the glossary, just tweet us. We'll, we'll absolutely put stuff Let in there. Let us know. Yeah. Um, so do go and have a look at that. And otherwise, if you've enjoyed today's episode, or indeed any of the other episodes, <laughs> please go leave us a little review on iTunes. We would love to hear from you guys. And check Check out our Spotify playlist. It's updated every time we release a new oh, episode yes. with all of the tunes that we've included in the episode, all of the tunes we've suggested you go mm. and listen to, and some extras as well, just, <laughs> just for laughs. So yeah, go and check it out. Backclassicalpodcast.com. We'll see you next time. Bye. 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 Bye.